Welcome to Solder Smoke, a podcast about wireless technology. We talk about everything from old-time crystal radios to modern digital satellites. We form a global brotherhood bound together by a common desire to understand, repair, design, and build our own electronic equipment, and by a willingness to help each other in our efforts to master radio technology. All are welcome. Now, please join us in the solder smoke. All right, good morning. It's Tuesday, January 25th, 2011. That makes this solder smoke 130. Uh, going to start out with a little travelogue, some local stuff. Been spending some time with the Smithsonian. It's one of the big benefits of living in the Washington, D.C. area, an amazing resource. And uh, we headed down to uh, the Air and Space Museum uh, last weekend, not, not, not this one, but a week, a week ago, and uh, really a lot of fun. The, uh, they have an amazing exhibit on the Wright Brothers, and this was a real good follow-up to our trip out to Kitty Hawk that we talked about uh, a couple episodes ago. They have there in the Smithsonian the original Wright uh, flyer, the first plane, the one that they flew for the first powered flight down there at Kitty Hawk, so I got to see that. A lot of fun. Also, uh, did some reading about you know the, their selection of the site and what they did. <clears throat> sorry, what they did out there at, at Kitty Hawk. They did a lot of gliding. <clears throat> this and this kind of explains why Kitty Hawk was such a good location for them. Uh, I, I was amazed. They did um, in the two months prior to the powered flight. They did between 600 to 1,000 manned glider missions there. And that's how they got to kind of become familiar with the uh, the control of the aircraft and, and how to fly it. So uh, that was their flight training in uh, in glider mode. And uh, Kitty Hawk is certainly a good location for that. Lots of uh, gently sloping hills, good steady winds, and out of the way of the prying eyes of, uh, of competitors. Also at the main... Uh, um, Smithsonian location down there at Air and Space on the National Mall. They have a really nice uh, exhibit on Amelia Earhart. And we were, <clears throat> we were with some friends from, from Rome, and the, uh, the little girl was very interested in Amelia Earhart, so we spent some time at that exhibit. And I was uh, very pleased to find that they have a, a very nice um, kind of radio exhibit on the radios of the era. And they have one little interactive display there where you can tune the... Um, the radio, and uh, it has the uh, CW signals of the location stations that were on the air during that era, and you get to play a little game, and if you can decode the, um, the CW and identify the, um, the location station, you win a prize. Okay, so, you know, CW whiz that I am, of course, I was able to impress the, uh, the visitors by my rapid decoding. Of the, uh, of the of the location signals, nice a nice setup. Then uh, this weekend, my wife uh, took us out. She said, "You got to see this thing." She took me out to, to Dulles Airport to to view the, um, the 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 kind of the annex or the um, the big display for the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum, which is at a different location. I guess about 15 miles outside Washington, near Dulles Airport. What an amazing place! I mean, you walk in there, and they've got sitting right there on the floor in this big hangar, an SR-71 Blackbird. They've got uh, one of the Concords. They've got um, the uh, the shuttle Enterprise, which I think was a training training shuttle. They've got the Vega probe that went to Venus, and uh, and the balloon 
the balloon that they flew around Venus, I think this is amazing, I think around 1984, the Soviets had a mission to Venus that included the launch of a balloon. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> I mean, it's hard enough to fly a balloon around Earth. These guys are flying balloons around Venus. Very, very good. So, um, uh, three, um, three cheers for the, for the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. And if you're, you're in the Washington area, be sure to see those, both locations. The one down on the mall is great, but it's really worth a trip out to the, to the one at Dulles Airport because that's where they have the really big stuff. <laughs> and it's very well laid out. It's real comfortable. It's nice. Uh, a lot of fun for the kids. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, big thumbs up from, uh, from Solder Smoke for uh, Smithsonian Air and Space. Gentlemen, you might notice some changes in the audio. I, I, I mentioned this on the blog. Uh, one of my New Year's resolutions was to make some improvements in Solder Smoke's audio quality. Uh, Long-time listeners will know that we have a lot of room for improvement in this area. I think it's because we started out with the kind of crackly, uh, low-quality audio that you often get on Echolink that we haven't really paid a lot of attention to the audio quality here, and we should because, uh, well, I mean, it's it's uh, it's going into those little earphones all around the world and uh, might as well make it sound good. I, uh, we have some, some money has been accumulating in the donation bucket, thanks to all those who have contributed, and I was just about to spend it on a new microphone, and I just said, wait a second, I have lots of microphones sitting around here in the uh, N2CQR Radio Shack. Why don't I see if, I, if, if some of those mics can, can perform as well as some of this stuff that they're they're selling on the internet the the stuff that they were selling on the internet all looked i don't know it it's got this kind of audio fool kind of um quality to it a lot of kind of uh, audio snake oil if you know what i mean the folks who sell um you know wires for audio systems with no oxygen bubbles and insist that gold wires carry the audio better than ordinary copper wires and all this kind of stuff, and and I just I kind of got a got a kind of uneasy feeling about it, and I said, well, wait a second, a microphone really is a microphone in many ways, and I have a number of them sitting around here in the shack, so let's do some tests. So I pulled out the mics, and I, I got the required batteries and connectors and everything else, and they all were lined up here alongside the um, the Tecra 8100 laptop that I used to record solder smoke, and we did some comparison tests. I had the the original solder smoke mic that we've been using all these years. I had a, uh, a Turner Plus 2 transistorized mic that I had since I was a teenage ham. Now, not with the original element. The original element was replaced, I think, when we were in, uh, in the Azores with a little Electret uh, condenser mic. And the third microphone used in the test was the venerable Astatic D104 Chrome Lollipop. And um, we made some comparisons, and, and I know that uh, I asked about this on the blog, and a lot of you guys were hoping that the D104 would win out, and it did. And that's what I'm talking to you on right now. This is an Astatic D104. It's uh, the, the Chrome Lollipop. I probably bought it 1993, 1994 when I was in the Dominican Republic. I checked. It's got the original uh, Rochelle salt uh, cartridge in there. No fancy new cartridges. No ceramic cartridges either. This is the, uh, 
the crystal Rochelle salt cartridge that came with the D104. It has a little uh, transistor amplifier in the base, but I have that cranked way down, so I'm not really even using it. And um, I, I don't know, I, I kind of like the audio quality from it. I'm going to try to do it without a whole lot of processing. But, um, but there it is. It's, I, th I thought it sounded pretty good. Now let me know if I'm wrong, and we'll, <laughs> we'll do something else. I, I made some comments on the blog about this not being a CB mic. A lot of, uh, I got some comments from people saying, what is that, uh, that Citizens Band equipment doing in your radio shack? No, no, no. The, uh, the D104 is an, an old and respectable piece of um, amateur radio equipment. And, uh, you know, the, <laughs> the, the Turner SSB Plus 2 transistorized mic, I don't know, I, I mentioned on the blog that that definitely has a little bit of uh, kind of a good buddy feel to it. So I'm not going to defend that one. But we're going with the D104, and I hope you like the audio quality. I, I made some attempts to deal with my um, whistling S's here, and I, I, I think you guys will get a kick out of this. It's, I think this comes into the category of heroic audio improvements. Um, I, when I was in the shopping, shopping when I was in the in the supermarket uh, over the weekend, at the checkout counter, I grabbed a a packet of Starburst uh, candies. These are the kind of chewy candies we have in the states, and uh, and a, a packet of double mint gum. And my idea was to jam some of this material in the gap between my two front teeth, and hopefully suppress the the whistle. And I got to tell you, um, it worked for a while, but the um, the Starburst um, melts, and uh, it's quite delicious, but it's not really good for as an S suppressor because you'd have to replace it every few few minutes, which wouldn't be good. Um, double mint gum, I'm sad to report, isn't worth anything as, a, as an S suppressor because it, it just doesn't get that kind of chewy consistency that you need, and it's, it's constantly falling out of your teeth. You guys will get a kick out of this. Don't, don't tell my wife because she will flip. I'd said, well, wait a second, how about a piece of tape? And I looked around and, yeah, big roll of duct tape sitting here. And I put the duct tape in there. Well, actually, around the teeth. You know, this is bad because I've told you I've been going to the dentist lately and it's expensive. So I'm thinking, you know, this is kind of dumb. I'm putting duct tape glue on my expensive dental work here. But hey, it's for a good cause. It's for the listening pleasure of you, the individual solder smoke listener. Uh, but duct tape didn't work either, so there's nothing in there now, guys. The starburst is melted. The uh, the Wrigley's double mint gum has fallen out. The, the 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 duct tape has failed to adhere. So if I'm whistling, well, I'm sorry. We'll try something again next time. I hope it's not too bad. Hey, listen. On the subject of audio, when I was making these changes uh, to the audio, I thought, okay, let's take a look at the whole audio package of the show. And I briefly, very briefly thought about getting rid of or changing or maybe moving to the end the uh, the musical intro that we have uh, at the start of the show and this this music is unique designed especially for solder smoke by our friend W8MOJ Moj Johnson uh, you know and I like I said I feel bad about even briefly thinking about moving this away from the front of the show but but no I got a message it was like fate just as I was thinking about this I was reading a book called Rocket Men by Craig Nelson. It's about the Apollo program. Nice book. And I just, just as I was thinking about this kind of thing, I get to the part where uh, Neil and Buzz and Mike Collins are on their way to the moon. 
and the author is describing the atmosphere in the command module. He said it's not quiet because astronaut Neil Armstrong had brought along a tape with some music that he liked and the instrument was the theremin. Armstrong was listening to Samuel Hoffman's Music Out of the Moon played on a theremin aka an etherophone on the way to the moon. The, the theremin is this instrument that was developed I guess who I guess 1920s something like that maybe earlier by a Russian and you don't have to touch it you just move your hand close to it and it comes up with this kind of spooky uh, techno effect and uh, I know that Moj used a theremin quite a bit in the production of our theme music hey if it's good enough for Neil Armstrong on the good on the way to the moon it's it's good enough for solder smoke so the Moj music stays thanks again Moj hey um, Oh yeah, by the way, the theremin has some really interesting history, uh, and if you get a chance, just put in theremin wiki, and look at the theremin wiki. Very, very interesting stuff. I'll try to put a link up onto the blog. Speaking of space, you know, I've been, it seems like the last few weeks I've been drifting off into space. Readers of the blog will, will know this. Almost all the blog entries have some sort of space connection. The most recent was NASA calling for hams to help find the NanoSail-D satellite. This was a, a little microsat that they sent up. The idea was it was going to deploy a solar sail in orbit, and then they were going to study the, the, the characteristics of the solar sail. Um, there were some problems with the, with the deployment, and they were looking. They, they, at one point last week, they asked radio amateurs around the world to listen on a specific frequency up around 70 centimeters to, um, to listen for the satellite. And I'd like to send out uh, some solder smoke congratulations to the radio amateurs who first heard the packets from this missing satellite. He's, they are Alan, Saig, Alan Sieg and Stan Sims from the Marshall Space Flight Center Radio Club. The, um, the scientists working on the project went down to the radio club and asked uh, Alan and Stan to listen. And they, uh, they, I guess they had the Keplerian data and they knew when the thing was going to be overhead, I think. Anyway, they tuned in and they got the packets. So exciting stuff. Not every day that NASA comes to us and asks for assistance. Uh, a number of other amateurs around the world picked up uh, packets from the um, from NanoSail-D, and I have uh, info on that on the blog and uh, a YouTube video taken by a radio amateur, I believe in, in Holland, uh, who, um, uh, who, who showed uh, his recording of the, the satellite pass. Um, all right, still out in outer space. I haven't, you know, I haven't been out with the telescope too much. Uh, it's cold out there, so I guess I'm a, a bit of a fair-weather astronomer. But I have been reading a lot, and I pulled up an old book I picked up. I really like this book, and I'm, I'm sure that very few of you have it, so I'm really glad that I have mine, and I, I'm, I wish it was, it was more available. Uh, the name of the book is Big Year 2 by John Krauss, W-H-J-K. Uh, John is the um, electronic engineer who worked on the big antennas out there in West Virginia, the radio telescopes. He's also the originator of the famous 8JK, one of the first directional arrays used by uh, by radio amateurs, before the Aggies, I think, before the quads. Um, real interesting stuff in his book, and it, it's it's obviously a self-published book, but but he, he did a really great job on it, and I'm, I'm really pleased to have probably one of the few copies out there. Um, Here's something that I found really interesting. A while back on the blog, we uh, put an article up about a fellow that we mentioned, 
fairly frequently on the blog and on the podcast, and that's Grote Reber. Grote was one of the world's first, if not the world's first, true radio astronomer. He was a radio amateur, living, um, uh, where, where was he? Let's see. Yeah, yeah, in Wheaton, Illinois. Uh, and uh, kind of down and out during the 1930s, during the Depression. No, uh, no job, nothing to do, but he, uh, he decided he was going to build a radio telescope. And he built this amazing, and I have a picture of it up on the blog, amazing um, radar-looking dish aimed up up at the sky. And he, uh, he did some of the first work on listening to signals from space and, and mapping the galaxy. Really great stuff. What a great name, too. More about that in a minute. I'm reading uh, Krauss's book, and he starts talking about Grote Reber. And he talks about a link between Reber and probably the most famous astronomer in the 20th century, Edwin Hubble. Hubble, of course, not to be confused with our Howard Hubble, um, uh, not Howard Hubble, Howard Armstrong. It sounds familiar. Edwin Howard, there's a lot of names in there. And briefly, I was confusing them. But Edwin Hubble, the, the astronomer, the guy who figured out that, the, um, <laughs> that there were other galaxies out there and that the universe is expanding, two, two pretty important discoveries, I'd say. Um, there's a connection between Edwin Hubble and Grote Reber. And uh, Krauss is the one who explains it to us. And he writes that in, in Wheaton, Illinois, while in the 7th and 8th grade, young Edwin Armstrong's teacher was a Miss Harriet Grote. Miss Harriet, Miss Harriet Grote, later married a fellow named Schuyler Reber, and they named their son Grote Reber. <laughs> so there you have it. Uh, Grote Reber's mom was Edwin, Arm, Edwin Hubble's 7th and 8th grade teacher. Good job there, Miss... Uh, Miss um, Harriet Grote, you did a good job with your son and with uh, with your student there. Excellent stuff. All right, let's see. Where's our next page here? Okay, I've also been reading about the um, exploration of Venus. This is uh, just by happenstance. I, I ran into that stuff out there at the uh, Air and Space about the Soviet probe. But I've been reading a book called The Evening Star by Henry S.F. Cooper. It's about the Magellan mission to Venus. Uh, Magellan arrived at Venus in August 1990, and as I went through the book, I found a, a number of things that I know would be of interest to Solder Smoke listeners. Kind of a reminder of how dramatically things have changed uh, in terms of data transmission since 1990. When they were getting the original data from Magellan when it got to Venus, um, the data tapes that were produced at the Goldstone Radio Telescope in the Mojave Desert were, were brought to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. They were driven to JPL <laughs> by, by one of the JPL secretaries driving a Corvette. So can you imagine? They send this the spaceship to Venus. It goes all the way to Venus. It gathers the data using radar sends the first bunch of data back. It's picked up by the sophisticated radio telescope out there in Goldstone. And they take it and they stick it in a Corvette and they, they tell the secretary, drive this over to JPL. My, wow, <laughs> things have changed. Um, the book also describes, it, it, the author, I must say, he's not like many of the, uh, many of the journalists and non-scientists who work on these kind of topics. It, the, the technical description is kind of at times a bit weak.
but and and that was the case in this area I think but but still you could see in the book the the trade-off between bandwidth signal to noise ratio and data transmission rates when they're talking about how long it takes them to get the data back from the spacecraft and how the the use of different antenna systems whether they're talking about a, a, a uh, the the high gain antenna versus the low gain antenna on the spacecraft, and how that affects the amount of time it takes for them to get the data back. I thought it was really interesting, and and of course very familiar. Um, it's a, it's a familiar situation, especially to people who have been playing around with QRSS and and Whisper systems. And I saw a real parallel between our um, our hobby activities and the. Uh, well, it's the same con physics constraints. It's uh, Shannon's information theory, and the same factors, of course, were at work there on the path between um, between Venus and the Earth. Um, I also thought it was interesting that um, when the um, the controllers on the ground were sending instructions to the spacecraft, especially software updates, especially when the spacecraft was in a bit of trouble and they were having trouble getting. Their, uh, the new software into the spacecraft. They had to use the, uh, the Deep Space Network radio telescopes at very high power to transmit, to try to get the, uh, the signal and the new software into the spacecraft all the way there at Venus. <clears throat> and um, I didn't know this, but when they, when they made those transmissions, the, um, the effective radiated power at, at UHF was so high that they had to put out a warning to aircraft in the area to stay out of the path of the radio beam. <laughs> Here, I got a question. In the book, they're talking about uh, damage, possible damage to some of the silicon chips in the spacecraft. And they, the author claims that the, the engineers working on the project believed that over time, the chips somehow healed themselves. And that was a, a mystery to me. I mean, I, I, I've, I've worked on a lot of chips. I've worked on a lot of radios. But I haven't had any of them, I, as far as I know, heal themselves. Uh, how does that work? I mean, is there something that goes on in these sophisticated chips that allows the chip to, in effect, heal itself? Because the, the author makes repeated reference to this. And I just wonder if some of you um, chip gurus can spread some, could shed some light on that. One final thing that I thought was really cool, and wait, I, um, uh, okay, I'll mention this now. Um, the, um, <laughs> the authors say that um, uh, they talk about the process of naming geographic, well, I guess, terrain features on Venus. Wouldn't be geographic, right? And they decided to name them all for women. And um, this later on, Created, created some controversy, but they decided back then to name them all for women, and they went through this really extensive process of coming up with the, the required number of names to name all the features on on Venus. It's all done. There's only one male name on Venus. Only one feature on all of Venus named for a man. And um, I'll, I'll, I'll make this part of the Trivial Pursuit portion of the show. Who was that man, and why is he alone in the harem? Well, it was our own James Clerk Maxwell, a name well familiar to uh, those involved in the radio arts. And the reason he's there 
alone amongst all those women is that um, they named some features of Venus using early maps developed by radar from the Earth. This is another amazing thing. You know, they, they came up with fairly good maps of Venus um, from the Earth in the 1960s using radar fired by the Arecibo telescope in, in Puerto Rico. I think that's just pretty amazing. I, I want to read more about that. But they were able to, to discern the big terrain features on Venus and figure out its rate of rotation using the Arecibo telescope and, and radar transmitted from it. Um, and so when they got some of the big features, they named, um, they named them. And this was before they had decided to name everything for women. Now, a number of the other features that were named for one other reason were dropped or changed, or when, when they came up with the more detailed maps from the orbiting spacecraft radars, they decided to change those names. But one of the main features there, which had been named for Maxwell, it was decided to keep it named for Maxwell. So Maxwell is, right now, the only man on Venus. <laughs> All right. Like I said, I've also been reading this book, um, Rocket Men, by, um, by Craig Nelson. Uh, pretty good. Uh, again, a bit weak on the technical side. You know, he starts explaining the technical stuff, or he starts to try to explain it. Then almost, you can almost detect kind of the, um, kind of the impatience of a, uh, <laughs> speaking as one of the group, but the impatience of the liberal arts major. And he, uh, he just sort of gets sort of halfway through the explanation of whatever technical thing he's discussing and kind of kind of quits and bails out but uh, also the this book kind of could have used a little bit more editing I find annoying number of kind of sentences in there that are real clunkers but um, other than that it's really good it gives really gives, gives good historical context on the, um, the Apollo program and it's filled with a lot of interviews and um, kind of um, feedback sessions with people who are involved in the project and a lot of a lot of real kind of gritty detail at one point uh, they were talking about you know how uh, when Alan Shepard was getting ready to fly the first American manned spaceship uh, Chuck Yeager who'd been out flying the X-15s out west and who had stayed away from the uh, from NASA and the space program, and was kind of scornful of it. He, um, he, uh, as Shepard, he was scornful of it because they were flying monkeys, in part because they were flying monkeys. So when, just before Shepard was going to fly, uh, Jaeger sent him a message saying, I guess in typical kind of pilot humor, he said, uh, be sure to wipe the monkey shit off the seat before you get in there. <laughs> And then the, the other, the, the, the scorn was also kind of um, reflected in the, a phrase that some of them were saying about the, uh, the early days of the Mercury program. And they said, um, first the chimps, then the chumps. <laughs> anyway, this is the kind of gritty detail that you get in, uh, in Rocket Men. So uh, even though it's not, not quite uh, perfect, uh, it's, uh, it, gets a, it gets a thumbs up from Solder Smoke. All right, now on some technical projects of our own in the aviation area. For Christmas, Billy got a, one of these little coaxial um, helicopters. A few years back, we had um, a little, little radio-controlled helicopter, 
and I think uh, Farhan in India had had the same one. They've made massive improvements in these things since that time, and now they're flying what they call coaxial helicopters. I saw a full-scale version of this uh, design out at the Air and Space Museum, and basically they take care of the torque problem by having uh, two rotors, one going clockwise, the other going counterclockwise. They also keep it very stable by having kind of a, an auto gyro um, up on top of the rotors that keeps it um, pretty much horizontal all the time unless you're actually wanting to move it. So the whole thing's very stable. Great fun, easy to fly. Um, we were having a, a terrific time with it. Now we were crashing it quite a lot and the new puppy was occasionally going over and grabbing it from the ground which wasn't good. So I kind of figured that this wouldn't last too long and sure enough it started to develop this problem. And I wanted to let you guys know about this because I know you're interested in troubleshooting and uh, technical problems and this is after all a radio controlled aircraft so it's it's related to the radio arts. But the thing would start, instead of being its normal, very stable, horizontal self, it would start kind of wobbling. And then the wobbles would get kind of circular, get worse, and then all of a sudden the whole thing would come crashing down as the upper rotor hit the lower rotor. It's not supposed to do that. So I knew that, that there would undoubtedly be a, um, a large community of coaxial helicopter fans out there on the Internet. Sure enough, there they were. And I started wondering about this problem and if there was anything that I could uh, do about it. And sure enough, they, the problem is well recognized, well discussed. It even has a name and an acronym. The acronym is TBE. That's Tango Bravo Echo. TBE. And TBE stands for, and I know you, you troubleshooters out there will get a, a kick out of this. TBE stands for Toilet Bowl Effect. <laughs> Because when the helicopter starts doing this, it looks like it's kind of going down the tube. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so uh, you have to admire the radio-controlled aircraft guys for coming up with that acronym. I've had many radios that seem to be, not, not physically, but sort of metaphorically uh, exhibiting the TBE. Um, and uh, they're, they're, it's not quite sure how, I'm not quite sure how to cure it. There's, there were all kinds of solutions presented on the internet but I'm not quite sure I'm going to be able to implement any of them. It might be worthwhile just to spend another 25 bucks and get Billy a replacement helicopter but uh, a lot of fun and take a look at the coaxial helicopters out there. They're cheap, they're easy, they're easier to fly than the, uh, than the uh, radio controlled model airplanes that we had last year that I think may have contributed to my uh, broken Achilles tendon. <laughs> But anyway, hey, I'm talking about Billy's project, a, uh, a very kind listener sent us a, uh, a, a decrepit Sony Vios laptop that we have miraculously brought back to life. I went out and bought Billy a couple, of, an, an extra gig of RAM for it, and uh, it's, it's going great. The only thing he needs is uh, uh, a charger for a, a Sony Vios laptop. I think these things have something like 19.7 volt supplies. And they have a weird little connector, so it's not like you could use any um, any uh, laptop supply. If anybody's got an old Sony Vios laptop battery charger power supply, um, let me know. I could, we could really use it. On a similar note, during the move, we lost the um, the power supply for Billy's Asus um, EPC uh, 
notebook computer. I'd like to get that going. I'm sure I could do something with that. If anybody has one of those, please let me know also. Um, other technical projects here in the, uh, in the ham shack. I am refurbishing my old 4.5 inch uh, reflector telescope that I bought probably in 1993 in the Dominican Republic. Um, it's a, a, a TASCO telescope, which is almost uh, universally scorned by, um, by Astro fans because it's sort of the bottom of the line cheapo telescope. But this one actually is pretty good. And a, a Newtonian reflector is really simple. It's a, it's a tube with a mirror at the bottom and a little magnifier reflector thing at the top. And uh, the optics in this thing is quite good. It's very light. And I, um, I'm getting kind of tired of lugging the heavy, the much heavier 6-inch Newtonian around. So I want to refurbish this thing and get it back going. I need to come up with a simple light mount that will make it uh, easy and portable to carry around. But I also need a, uh, a finder scope because somewhere in the many moves that we've made, the, uh, the finder scope, kind of the sighting, the sight, which is very important on a, this kind of telescope, has gone missing. And I've been looking at options for replacing it. And my favorite option that came to me by way of the internet, of course, was, by, was to use a, um, a gun sight, not from like a real gun, but apparently Daisy BB guns. And I know many of you um, risked your, your health and eyesight with um, Daisy BB guns as kids. Gene Shepard has had a, many famous uh, stories about his love for, his love-hate relationship with the Daisy BB gun. Anyway, um, I, I had one, but I never had a, had a scope on it. But apparently they sell a scope. It's got a little laser device in there, and it, apparently it's just the thing to serve as a uh, kind of replacement uh, telescope finder scope. So I'm going to be in the look, on the lookout for a, uh, a Daisy BB gun sight. I think it would be kind of cool to strap that on the Tesco, on the Tesco telescope and uh, explore, well, not the universe, but maybe the solar system with it. Here's a question. i got a technical question for you guys related to a project that I'd like to complete in the ham shack. Um, as my shipment came in, I, I had a box that came in with a device that I hadn't really ever used. And it's, um, remember in the old days where we all had to have uh, uninterruptible power supplies on our computers, the UPS supplies? Well, I have one, and uh, it, it's just new out of the box. It's been sitting in the box for a long time. It's got a nice... Uh, like looks like a seven amp hour 12 volt gel cell battery in it and uh, it's got obviously got the circuitry to keep the battery charged and it's also got some AC inverter circuitry in there so you could get 110 volts AC out of it now, I'm not so much interested in the 110 volts AC although that that could be useful could be nice what I'm really interested in is using the charger circuitry to, uh, to charge uh, this uh, 12 volt gel cell which could be useful but, uh, you know, I have a problem with it. Even though it's never been used, when I plug it in, I, I get a little kind of alarm light that comes on that uh, indicates some sort of ground fault or um, reverse polarity on the, uh, on the input plug. Now, I don't know why that is. Maybe the, the house wiring is all somehow backwards. I doubt it because I think I had the problem in another location too. So if anybody has any ideas on this or on the, the suitability of, of this kind of uh, uninterruptible power supply as a uh, battery charger, let me know. I'd, I'd like to, to make use of it. I have been actually melting some solder since the last show, I'm, I'm pleased to report, but, but not with a lot of success. I mentioned that uh, 
that our friend Jim AL7RV has um, resurrected his old Zenith transoceanic shortwave receiver from um, from Vietnam War days. I had a picture of Jim on the blog with uh, with the the transoceanic at a location somewhere in the southern part of the United States. Gentlemen, we're now joined by. Hold on a second. Down there, Maria. We're joined by um, the lovely and talented Maria Patricia, the not so lovely and talented uh, Capucho, the dog, and Maria has in her arms the uh, the terrified Tyson, the cat, terrified because of Capucho, the dog. So the whole gang is here <laughs> this morning. <laughs> anyway, um, what was I saying? Um, oh yes, uh, AL7 RVs. Transoceanic. Uh, Jim mentioned that he needed a BFO for this uh, for this receiver so that he could listen to uh, to sideband and CW. And I told him that I had one here that I had built back in the Azores. I built it in a Altoids tin, and I built it using a um, 455 kilohertz IF transformer and uh, variable cap as the uh, as the tuned circuit. And I thought, oh man, this is great. I'll just dig this thing up. I'll slap a battery in it, I'll send it off to Jim, and I'll, I'll have played a role in bringing this transoceanic back to full use. Well, when I tested the thing out, it, it turned out that it, it was pretty horribly unstable. And uh, I guess it might not have been, you know, your, your memories are always better than reality in these kind, with these kind of things. And I guess uh, it wasn't quite as useful as I thought it was. So I started exploring other circuits, and there's a lot of circuits on the Internet for these little kind of outboard 455kc uh, BFOs. You don't even have to hook them up to the radio. There's usually enough um, kind of bleed through or pick up by the IF circuitry that you just need to turn them on and set them close to the to the radio and they'll work. Um, I played with one. I tried to build one using a, a ceramic resonator at 455 kilohertz. I couldn't get that going. Um, then I tried building one with an old 455kc crystal I had here. Couldn't get that going. So it's a um, you know, it's the simplest little thing, but I just uh, haven't been able to get it going. I haven't given up. Uh, Jim, don't worry. The BFO is the BFO for the Transo is is on its way, and I'm hoping to get it finished up this weekend. I'm trying to put it in a nice Altoids can and send it off to wherever our um, our RV roving friend AL7RV happens to be at the moment. We'll we'll, we'll give you some uh, some some reports uh, on that. Okay, now I now we're going to take a little side trip to um, to England, and I got a couple things to report in this area. First of all, the new Sprat has arrived. Always a happy day. Always a happy day when Sprat arrives, and um, really uh, enjoy looking at it. Thanks to the GQRP Club for sending us that uh, that wonderful publication. If you're not subscribed to Sprat, you're um, as they used to say in the army, you're wrong. <laughs> I really recommend that you subscribe to it. That all kinds of information on how to do so via a U.S. representative and it's um, or representatives around the world or direct from GQRP. All the information is on the GQRP website. Go check it out. But um, Spratt reminded me of a book that I'd been looking through, kind of on and off. And in keeping with today's kind of radio literature theme. Um, the book I'm talking about now is called 100 Local Heroes by a fellow named Adam Hart Davis. Adam Hart Davis um, 
uh, had an, had television shows. I'm sure he still does on the BBC. And one of his one of the shows was Local Heroes, and I guess he took the information from this show and put it in book form. We used to watch the show when we were in London. Great stuff. And the local heroes are uh, people around Britain who contributed to science or technology, and uh, they're scattered all over the country, and um, they're often recognized by a blue plate or not. And, and Adam Hart Davis found out about who they were and where they lived, and he visited the places that they lived on bicycle and then wrote about them and did this TV show that I really liked. I, um, I met Adam Hart Davis one day in Hyde Park, and uh, I was just walking through the park, heading back to work with a colleague, and then I saw him there on his bike <laughs> with a sort of characteristic, brightly colored, uh, almost fluorescent shirt on. And I, I told him I liked the show, and he, he was pleased to hear that. So it's always nice to have a personal connection with people who you, you see on, on television or whose books you read. Anyway, I, I, there were many, many things interested in, in this book that, uh, that I could mention. And um, one of them that I, wa- that I thought was really interesting, what came in his chapter on um, Henry Hunting's telephone microphone. In this chapter... Adam mentions that, quote, in Victorian times, clergymen often dabbled in science. Well, they still do, Adam, and uh, this made me think of one of our heroes, a homebrew hero, uh, George Dobbs, G3RJV. George, uh, glad to hear that you were continuing in this uh, tradition of uh, clergymen dabbling in science. Now, uh, continuing on this English uh, theme here, I want to tell you about something that I found looking through uh, a little-known book, but a very good one. I'll tell you about it in a second. You know, um, when I was in in London from 2003 to 2007, I um, attended, I think, almost all of the Kempton Park radio rallies. And when I first started going to them, I I referred to them as ham fests. And our, um, our British cousins very kindly and politely told me that in in the UK they're not ham fests. Ham fests are American things. Um, in England and in the rest of the UK they're known as rallies, radio rallies. So okay, I corrected myself and I henceforth I referred to them as as rallies and enjoyed them a lot. And it, it was interesting to compare. They were very much like the uh, American ham fest with the you know some differences. I commented on them at the time. I think they start a little bit later. There's some activities that, that we don't have in the States. But in general, the same kind of stuff, the mix of, you know, junk and uh, coffee and donuts and good fellowship and, uh, and haggling over, um, over junk, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, but here's the question, guys. And here's the question, and I think this is going to be a surprise to our English listeners. There was a time when there were ham fests in England. Not rallies. No, no. Ham fests, using the ham fest terminology. So you see, I wasn't entirely wrong in referring to ham fests when the folks who corrected me said that they're called rallies in England. Well, they're, they're, they're right, they are. But there was a time when there were ham fests in England. When was that, and what were the circumstances? 
I'll give you a second to think about it, but not too not long enough to go to Wikipedia. Drum roll, please. Okay, I read about this in uh, the book World at Their Fingertips by John Claricott's G6CL. This book is a history of amateur radio in the United Kingdom. A very nice book. Um, and and he said that in and he, he notes in here, quote, it required a world war to bring about the first Anglo-American Hamfest. Hamfest. It was held at Edgware Road near the Marble Arch in London. That's very close to where I lived and very close, very, very close to the U.S. Embassy. And it was held on September 23, 1944, with the V-1 threat at its peak. Radio amateurs will not be deterred, gentlemen. There were uh, 50 U.S. hams participating. All of them had obviously been been brought to to England for um, the invasion of Europe, and there were uh, 25 UK radio amateurs also participating. Uh, a good time was had by all, and it was uh, really enjoyed so much that uh, a second event was held on October 28, 1944. And in the book, it notes that at the request of the Americans, G6CL himself, the author of the book was the chairman of that second event. Sounds great, and I uh, I really liked hearing about that. So there you have it, guys, a bit of uh, a solder smoke uh, UK trivia, hamfests in jolly old England. Very good. <laughs> I thought that was fun. Let's see, what else we have here? Okay, I, I guess that brings us to the time in the show. You guys are familiar with this, and uh, yeah, let's go to... Solder Smoke Mailbag. Oh, awesome. Indeed. All right, Solder Smoke Mailbag. Um, heard from uh, somebody we haven't heard from in a while. We're very happy to hear from Greg, OH2FFY, the Australian friend living in Finland. He um, he responded, as, as a number of listeners did, to my uh, tale of daring do in the repair area with the Sony Vios laptop computer and the toes up nvidia graphics card he said that my repair reminded him of a similar reflow episode with a using in which he he had to repair the um, the voltage controlled oscillator of a phillips fm 900 uhf rig uh, same kind of thing bad solder in there and i think the same kind of repair heat was was applied and um he got it he got it fixed um Alan, WA9IRS, sent us a real nice note and some very, very uh, nice equipment. Uh, that um, and he said that he also uh, seen this. He's also seen the same problem and the tin whiskers issues here in some of the field environmental sampling equipment. Uh, and he's had to do some reflow rep- repairs. And he said uh, some of the joints look like the old. Heath kit, good solder joint versus bad solder joint photos from years ago. Yeah, I know, I know. This is a bad problem. Thanks for the note and thanks for the the nice equipment, Alan. Very, very useful for us. Um, Jim, WA8ZHN, says that Radio Shack has a good piece of gear that might be of use to those who are venturing into the UHF realm. There's a set finder power meter. Uh, that covers from 950 to 2050 megahertz, 
this is for those of you who are moving beyond the the frequency range of the uh, of the ZOI uh, power meter that we've that many of us have built. Thanks for sharing that, Jim. Tony VK7AX. Um, he reports that solder smoke is being played on the air, on repeaters, and on Echolink in uh, Western Tasmania. <laughs> really glad to hear that. I give a big shout out to all of our Tassie listeners. Very, very pleased to know that we're being transmitted in VK7. Um, the show, uh, Tony's also making the show available on, on Echolink. And he is performing, I think, a valuable service here. He has edited the show for uh, radio transmission. I think all he has to do is uh, chop off the, uh, the, the music at the beginning to make it uh, suitable and compatible with the no music regulations that still exist in many countries. So if you want to follow uh, Tony's example and transmit solder smoke over your repeaters or, or, or on the air in some form, but you need to get rid of the music, uh, contact him. I think he's already done the, uh, the music re- removal process. Uh, Rob, KD7KAR listens to the podcast while in flight. He's a pilot. He also says he really liked the book. He gave a copy to uh, a friend of his, W6PSC, who, and this is really admirable, is still melting solder at age 96. Uh, uh, Old man PSC, he might be our oldest old man listener here. So uh, congratulations to W6PSC. And uh, Rob, thanks for for passing along uh, Solder Smoke, the book. Greg at KC2DWF. Um, he uh, he really helped out, but he helped out he helped the show in a kind of an unusual way. He uh, he he followed our our request and began his shopping uh, spree at Amazon by going through the uh, the link on our site, and he bought a uh, a snowblower. Actually, I call it a snow thrower on Amazon via our link and of course I think we get uh, we get a percentage of that and I noticed a big uptick in the uh, in our Amazon revenues so I, I think that might be our first uh, first ever uh, snowblower purchased uh, through our link <laughs> glad to glad to have the support I, I noticed a lot of people have bought uh, Kindles and they've bought them through our site I think every time that happens we get about 15 bucks so that'll that'll keep us in uh, Internet service providers and microphones and and uh, and hard drives and thumb drives and all the stuff that we need to keep the program going. So thanks a lot uh, for for that, uh, um, Greg. Um, he also said that he uh, Greg also said that he enjoyed uh, reading uh, Tim Ferriss's uh, Seeing in the Dark. This is a book that we've recommended a number of times. This is about amateurs who are um, making uh, contributions to real science. In, in astronomy, and uh, Greg noted that many of the people in this book are, quote, people of the knack. Um, he also said that he, he, he enjoys uh, Make magazine. i got to say, Make is doing an amazing job. Um, and uh, I, I watched the blog. I haven't subscribed to the magazine yet, but I think I'm going to. There's a fellow at work that gets it, and uh, every time he shows me one of these issues, I think, man, i got to subscribe to this magazine. Uh, Jeff, N5ITU. Um, has been picking up uh, our whisper signals and sends in a report. Glad to glad to know that uh, solder smoke listeners are seeing us on whisper. Nick at G eight I N E says if um, <clears throat> this is a good one. Uh, Nick said that uh, if I am using the D one o four, that I should dress 
uh, formally when speaking in front of this chrome lollipop microphone. And I guess this goes back to the kind of pictures that I see in the book World at Their Fingertips. All the, uh, the distinguished British amateurs of days gone by, they seem to put on a suit and tie every time they, they went into the, uh, into the ham shack to transmit. Um, Nick, all I, all I can tell you is this must be some sort of Brit thing because uh, <laughs> it ain't happening over here. <laughs> I hate to tell you what some of the American radio amateurs are wearing when they're transmitting, but I tell you it's probably far from formal. In my case, I think blue jeans and a t-shirt is as formal as we get, although I have melted solder in a business suit, and there's a story about this in Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics. Uh, I was frantically trying to repair a um, homebrew 17-meter single sideband transmitter when we were out in the Azores, and um, I, I figured out what needed to be done just minutes before we were scheduled to leave for a formal diplomatic event. So. With my wife upstairs finishing her uh, getting dressed and preparations for the event, in my business suit, I ran down to the to the ham shack, fired up the soldering iron, and quickly put in a, uh, a larger capacitor across the, uh, the variable frequency oscillator on the transmitter, made a quick test, and man, I went off to that event knowing that I was an electronic wizard. It made the event a whole lot nicer. Uh, people did comment on a strange odor of um, electrical nature. They were smelling, I think, the uh, 6040 rosin core aroma uh, that uh, Steve Snort Rosin Smith likes so much. That was my. Uh, that was where I got the first idea for solder smoke, the cologne. But that's another story. Anyway, thanks for that message, Nick. And uh, um, oh, uh, last time I, I on the blog I had mentioned. A piece of equipment that, that that I found in the shipment. This is the uh, the Nuvister two meter um, converter from Parks Electronics Laboratories in Beaverton, Oregon. Really cool looking piece of gear. I have a picture of it up on the web, on the uh, on the blog. It uses Nuvister tubes, six CW4 tubes. Each one of this each one of these tubes is about the size of your fingernail on your pinky. Little um, miniature tubes. And this is a, a really neat looking piece of gear. It's got its own AC power supply, input and output. It just, I mean, output connectors, uh, all the tune circuits. And I, I asked for suggestions on what I should do with it. I, um, I kind of suggested that Michael AA1TJ might be interested, but I think he's booked up with projects. Um, nobody liked the idea of chopping it apart and turning it into something else. There were all kinds of suggestions that it should be preserved that maybe somebody else would like it the way it is. One listener wrote in and he thought it was based on a 19, early 1960s article in QST by the famous Ed Tilden uh, on that circuitry. Um, anyway, uh, I, I don't think we're going to chop this one up. I think uh, we'll, we'll leave it the way it is. I, I really don't need a 2-meter down converter. I have one. But um, eh, this one, I, I think they're right. It's, it's nice. And hey, it's from a place important to radio amateurs around the world. Beaverton, Oregon, for a number of reasons. Beaverton is a, a real a center of, of ham radio activity. And uh, so we're going to leave it like it is now. And I, I don't know, I may think of something else to do with it. But uh, um, thanks to everybody who wrote in about what to do with the Parks Electronics Laboratory 2-meter New Vista down converter. Um, Bruce, KK0S, reports 
that there's a fictional character in um, some books that he found, pulp fiction books from the 1930s. The character's name is Doc Savage, and he says that all of the pe all the characters, or a number of the key characters in these books, seem to have the knack. So he recommends uh, the Doc Savage books from the 1930s for uh, solder smoke listeners. I think they're available on the web. All right, uh, gentlemen, that brings us to the end of uh, this edition of Solder Smoke. But before we go, I'd like to say uh, one more thing. You know, uh, don't forget about our friend Jerry and R5A out there in cold, cold South Dakota. Um, for a number of episodes now, we've been making a plea. We're looking for a very special spare part for Jerry. Uh, you guys know what I'm talking about. Jerry needs a, a kidney transplant. It'd be really great if we could uh, find some way for him to get that spare part. He could then spend... Uh, get away from spending all that time with those dialysis machines and start spending that time with his uh, oscilloscopes and soldering irons. Let me know if you have any ideas, any information, any connections, um, any insights in how Jerry might get this part that he, he really needs. We'd really like to help out a, a radio amateur in need. That's, uh, that, that's, that's it for Solder Smoke 130. We'll, uh, we'll see you guys next time. I um, hope the, uh, the winter is being kind to you. And uh, 7-3 from Northern Virginia. The Solder Smoke Podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener supported, and there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Solder Smoke, the podcast, and our blog. Put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from lulu.com. Begin all your visits to Amazon via the Amazon link on our blog page. In this way, Solder Smoke gets a commission from anything you buy on Amazon. Buy some of our attractive Solder Smoke t-shirts, coffee mugs, and bumper stickers at the Solder Smoke store at CafePress.com. If you have a small business, consider advertising on the podcast or on the blog. Our rates are reasonable and our staff is friendly. If none of this appeals to you but you still want to help, well we have a donation button in the upper left-hand corner of the blog page. However you choose to help, we thank you for your support. Ciao, bravi ragazzi!